Before we begin this episode, a quick announcement. This is the final episode of Best Laid Plans Season 1, and we hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we have while putting it all together. But fear not, our hope is to keep the series going with new episodes, new talent, new creative disciplines, and of course, new stories. But in order to do so, we're asking for your support. Since we don't run ads, we're counting on listeners like you to join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash best laid pod, where you can have early access to new episodes that we won't be releasing in full to the public and get the insider scoop on all things BLP. Once again, it's patreon.com forward slash best laid pod, or you can just head over to our website at bestlaidpod.com. We really appreciate your listenership and are grateful for any help you can provide in keeping Best Laid Plans going and growing. We look forward to all that is to come. Thank you so much. And now on to our final episode, for now at least. Comparison is deadly. It's really, really deadly for your for your happiness and for your, your self-esteem. And yet the tools for that comparison abound, and especially in the music industry. I mean, you look on Spotify, and the first thing that you can see is monthly listeners. There's no number for the depth of engagement, for like how much somebody's music means to somebody else. There's just this algorithmic, data-driven model. And... Unfortunately, that's what the whole industry is built around. You know, you're an artist and you look at your numbers. It's impossible to like look at anybody else's and see them and be like, well, they're doing better than me or not as well as me. It's not an immediate leap to then go, therefore, they are better than me or therefore they deserve that more than I do. But for somebody like me and my personality, it raised those questions. I would have a hard time not thinking about it at least. And if I were just to sort of follow my instincts... I'd obsess over all of that stuff. I'm John Frechette, and welcome to Best Laid Plans, the podcast that speaks to successful creatives in various industries about the moments in their careers when they had to pivot, compromise, or make a comeback when things didn't go as planned. Our guest today is Rishikesh Hirway, a musician and podcaster who created the hit series Song Exploder. Rishi made four albums as the 1AM Radio and an EP with Moores, his collaboration with Academy Award-nominated actor and rapper Lakeith Stanfield, and then started the Song Exploder podcast, which unintentionally derailed his music career. Now, a decade later, he's putting out music again under his own name. We talked to him about how he found his path, and then lost it, and then found it again. Now, here's Rishikesh with his story. I was a junior in college when I started playing shows. I'd been playing drums in bands, but I'd also occasionally would play a show, just me and guitar. And then in 1999, the spring semester, I started doing it a little more consciously. Brush your lips against the window pane Your eyes fixed on and I actually started playing under the name The 1AM Radio. 
some of the same songs that I'd been playing. So my senior year, that became my, my main focus. I would say even more so than school. The 1AM radio was kind of like the thing that I really majored in my senior year. I was an art major in school, and specifically I was focused on graphic design and photography. Those are both things that I loved, and I had already been doing graphic design since high school, even though I didn't know that's what it was called. I really was just in love with the process of everything about being in a band, which included sort of making flyers and things for your shows. And then later, I loved making really elaborate artwork for like mixtapes that I would make for friends, and things like that. When I realized that that was an actual vocation, I sought it out for myself. I definitely had a lot of support from a few close friends who were involved in music too. I think there was like a feeling of solidarity. You lost the language right out of your mouth. From my parents, it was more of a confused reaction. They thought playing music is great. They loved hearing the music that I would make, but the idea of trying to pursue that as your like primary career was beyond the realm of their comprehension they sort of had this attitude of like it's great do it as a hobby but you know you have to focus on having a real job they'd never met anybody who had a career in music and i think they just knew that it would be a very hard path and not necessarily a lucrative one one that might be beset with a lot of failure and so they wanted to spare me from that After I graduated college, I was working at this startup. It was near the house I grew up in, and so I was staying at home. My dad approved of that as a job choice because the salary was decent. I think probably still they felt that maybe I would go back to school at some point, get a master's degree, or go to law school, or something like that. At that time, graphic design even was still kind of a new idea for them. They understood, like, okay, websites, because it was sort of related to technology, and so, like, well, graphic design is something you do on the computer. And they could see that I was getting gigs from it and job offers from it. Basically, the dot-com bubble burst, and I got laid off after about seven months. But while I was working there, I took some time off to go on like a three-week tour, which was the longest tour I'd ever done at that point. And I really loved that experience. I went with my friends in this band, Jerome Stream, and they had booked it, and I kind of went at like opening for them. But playing night after night was really exhilarating. I came home from that, and I remember if you counted all of the cash that I had in my little cash box, and you included the quarters, it came out to exactly $1,000. And I was like, I made $1,000. That is real. Like That was money that I made from doing this thing that I love. And somewhere around that time, I decided I am not going to be someone who pursues music as like a hobby, the way my parents had suggested. I was like, this is going to be my job. And the stuff I do outside of that, that'll just be a means to supporting this dream. And then at a practical level, it didn't mean anything about my life would change because I still had to go to work. But in my head, there was this mental shift of like, no, I'm not a graphic designer who does music on the side. I was like, I'm a musician and I do whatever else it's going to take to make that happen. So then I kind of wanted to get out of Massachusetts for what I wanted to do, uh, which was make music and then also maybe score films. That had been another dream of mine since college. I thought that I needed to get out of where I was living. But I was trying to figure out if I moved to New York or if I should move to L.A. 
I really wanted to move to LA. I, I had been there on tour in 2000 after I had first graduated. My friend Chris had moved out at least then I knew one person who was trying to work in film. And so, you know, the one aim radio kind of moved with me wherever I was going to be in the world. So I was like, okay, now my musical home is in LA. And since I'm here, I can try and pursue stuff in the film industry as well. I remember getting my like tax return uh, from those first years. And I was just like, whew, this is rough. I think it was a tax return for like $10,000, you know, but I paid my bills, and I think the combination of the community that I found, the weather, and the sort of the musical side of things, all those things felt fulfilling my career, if you could call it that. I played some shows to like some bigger audiences, this college festival at James Madison University called Mac Rock, and it was like a big festival that they used to do every year. And for the most part, I was used to playing like basements with like punk bands where people would be crowded in a room and they'd be waiting to mosh and then I would come on and they'd be like, all right, and they'd listen to me. But there was something kind of stately about this theater. And it was like 330 people, I think, in this venue. At the end of the last song, I remember I'd asked people to sing along to this one part and this whole theater was like singing and it just sounded so good. afterwards we sold so much merch it felt incredibly validating it started to feel like i have some momentum i want to keep going i want to keep pursuing this and the economics of whatever it had to take or however poor i was going to be while doing it i could happily accept any of those other circumstances and so i had this desire to strip down my needs to the most bare bones kind of situation I could so that I could focus even more on music and worry less about covering my overhead with the odd graphic design job here or there. So I ended up moving into my friend Chris's closet. <laughs> to call it a walk-in closet would be too generous, but he had a closet in his hallway that was deep enough for a mattress. And so that was where I put an air mattress and I was like, okay, I'm going to make this my base of operations. I'm going to tour as much as possible, and I'm just going to do everything I can to focus on music. But then a funny thing happened. A friend of mine suggested that I come work at Apple. <laughs> so stupid. And I was like, no, no, no. But then while I was on tour, she was like, just come for an interview. So when I was on tour in the Bay Area, on my way back home to LA, I stopped at the Apple headquarters and had an interview. And I ended up taking a job with them basically because the pay was so good and I thought if I could do this for a little bit man I could pay for my life in the closet you know like in the literal closet for for so many months they basically offered me a job I said no and they said how about a contract and I said sure and they said how about a year I said no and they said six months I said no and they said three months and I said yes so I, I was like committed to working there for three months and that's what I did and then finally came back to L.A. in like 2005. So I kind of had these fits and starts in my life in L.A. And I finally moved here permanently in 2006 after going away again and making my next record.
takes me a really long time to make records. By the end of 2005, I still hadn't finished enough songs for a record. And again, in this pursuit of clearing out obstacles from my creativity, I ended up deciding to go to India and visit my uncle. My uncle was going through a divorce and I loved him so much and I wanted to visit him. But I also thought this could be a place where I could basically freeload is <laughs> a nice way of putting it. I mean, you know, it's very, very cheap to live and I could work on music. I could write, I could read, I could just sort of like think about my next record. And I did do a little bit of recording, but by the end of that trip, I wasn't that much further along. It finally got to be the spring of 2006 and I still hadn't finished. And I thought, okay, I can't wait to finish this record to get back to LA. Like that's where I want to go. That's where all of my friends are. That's where the action is. So I'm just going to take what I've got and continue this from there. I've been away for long enough. Now I am going to have to find a day job because I'm back in LA and I'm going to have to start paying rent and all this stuff. And I ended up getting a job as an assistant to the head of a record label called Dangerbird. I had an interview and the response I got was, well, you're overqualified for an assistant job. And my response was, well, I'm overqualified to work at the Starbucks too, but that's, you know, my next option. Like I need to do a job. I'm willing to do it. So like, why don't you give me the job? So then I went and started working as an assistant at this fledgling record label. And I was still trying to send off the record that at that point had almost finished. My house had lain, lost in darkness for weeks. I was sending off demos to other record labels in hopes of getting a, a record deal. That sounds so kind of old fashioned. I, in hopes of somebody, you know, deciding to put out that album. And I remember there were some labels that were coming through for meetings at Dangerbird, label heads. And I got excited and I mentioned to my boss, I said, would you be comfortable handing this, my demo to this person? And he was like, yeah, sure. And he came back the next week and he was like, so I listened to the CD you gave me. He's like, these are demos? Because these sound like fully finished songs. I was like, well, they aren't mixed, they aren't mastered. I'm like, they're not demo demos, but you know, it's, it's not a finished record. And then I ended up leaving for a couple shows on the East Coast. And while I was home, I ended up getting this email that a song of mine was going to be used in a Pontiac commercial, which was really exciting. Again, like in terms of external markers of validation, it felt like, oh, this is legit. This is more legit than anything that's happened before. And I, I remember I came back to the office and I told this news to my boss and his partner, they said, you know, he said, Okay, I can hand these off to these other labels if you want. I'm happy to do that. But what, what if you just make your record with us? I saw what they were doing, and they were getting a lot of success with their other bands. So I quit my job as an assistant and became an artist on the label instead. Man, this is getting good. My parents were thrilled about the car commercial, but I think also they were really thrilled about the idea that I used that money as a down payment to, to buy an apartment. You know, it was a big risk for me financially, being like an assistant and a touring musician to try and do that. But I felt like at that point, I'd been used to sort of scrimping and saving in pursuit of my career. And I think that really marked a turning point for them in their acceptance of sort of music as my career. It was like, oh, it's a real check and it's coming from Pontiac. I think let them breathe easier. 
it was a little bit harder for me because now suddenly instead of modest rent, I now had like a pretty massive like mortgage payment because the interest rate was so high at that time. And, <laughs> and also the huge loan that I had to take out to actually pay this thing off because like I had saved money and all that stuff, but it was like, I did 10% down and it still blows me away that a mortgage company was even willing to give a loan to someone with my kind of financial status. It just goes to show you why <laughs> the housing bubble even existed. So then I entered a new era of my music career because suddenly now doing music was my job. Like legitimately, I had gotten a record contract, but I also now had this massive financial burden. And so suddenly my commercial success as a musician had really dire consequences too. So 2007 was a really big year for me because that was my first year where I made my living entirely from being a musician. I did a lot of touring for my record, which at that point had come out. And then there were a couple of more licensing things that happened. And suddenly I was like, okay, this is my life. This is my career. It felt like this dream that I had had, you know, it was my first kind of experience of it actually coming true. I remember I was about to go on a big five-week tour again, and I wanted to get the tour dates out to as many people as possible. And so I was looking on MySpace for people who listed the 1AM radio under their favorite music. You know, there was like a category in MySpace, and you could actually do a search, specific search for like favorite music. And so I looked for that, and if they were people who had not already added the 1AM radio as their friend on MySpace, then I would add them as their friend. And then that way, when I sent out the tour dates, it would go to those people as well. It was really kind of like a low percentage way of trying to do some marketing. And in the course of doing that, I came across the profile of this girl in New York who had listed the 1AM radio in her favorite music, but she'd also put in parentheses that she thought I was cute. And, you know, it was like the record scratch moment. I was like, this is me <laughs> discovering, hey, that's me discovering uh, this profile. And it said East Village, New York. And at the same time, my former bandmate from my college band was about to move to the East Village in New York. And he was like, hey, after you're done with your tour, why don't you come hang out in the East Village with me? I'm going to have this sublet and we can hang out. When was the last time you spent some time in New York? And I was like, East Village, you say? Look at this profile that I found yesterday. This girl's in the East Village and she likes my music and she thinks I'm cute. And he was like, well, you, you know, you have to write her. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I sent her a friend request already. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but I ended up going on tour and eventually she accepted that like friend request. And then we started exchanging messages when that tour ended. I did stay in New York. I, I did stay with my friend and I met up with her in person and we went on a date and, uh, and then six weeks later I proposed to her <laughs> and then, um, then, you know, we ended up getting married and we've been together ever since. So that was almost 14 years ago.
I look back at my career with a mix of emotions, you know, some positive and some negative. But the one thing that I always end up kind of sort of coming back to is like whatever the mistakes were, whatever things I could have done differently, my music career afforded me. One great thing that happened was I met my wife because of that. Yeah. So in 2011, my next 1AM Radio record came out, but I also had my first shot at actually scoring a feature film because my friend Mike was directing a movie called Save the Date, and he asked if I would write a new song for the movie. When this was all happening, as I mentioned, my fourth album had just come out, and it was a record that I had really pinned a lot of hopes on. After feeling this sense of momentum between the early 2000s and all the way through, feeling like there were these little moments of progress here and there, but for the most part, it felt like I was pushing a boulder up the hill and it was pretty hard going. But every now and then there'd be just enough success, just enough of a little tiny bite of feeling like something's happening that would justify me continuing on that path. It had been like that for a decade, it felt like. And then this record came out and I was like, this is gonna be the one. And again, I had all this pressure now on my music career to like pay the bills. And I had bills now, I was an adult, I was in my 30s, and I had to really take this thing seriously. On top of that, I saw from the record label how they treated artists who were commercially successful differently than they treated other artists. There was a hierarchy of certainly attention and maybe respect and definitely opportunity for artists who were of a certain sort of tier of record sales versus others. And so for better or for worse, that was part of what fed how I made the record that came out in 2011. And also just to challenge myself to do something new creatively. The new thing in this case would be, you know, could you make something that was a little more upbeat? Just go into higher BPMs than the very sleepy stuff that I'd made before. You wouldn't think it would get this dark Driving down the stretch of Wilshire Boulevard But the sodium lines don't seem to reach as far From within the cheap tint of this goddamn car I put a lot into that record and ended up actually feeling very, very disappointed with how it rolled out. There's a huge part of luck in anything in the music industry or really any creative industry. But... There were also things where I was like, well, that got screwed up and that got screwed up. I was feeling a lot of sadness and resignment and disappointment, but still committed to like what I was doing and, you know, still wanting to try and forge forward. I think I had this moment of kind of like counting my blessings in the context of this disappointment when I wrote Accidents, because I started thinking about how for all that disappointment, it had actually been the reason why I ended up meeting the person who was about to be my wife. And I ended up writing what was basically my my wedding vows into a song. And I turned that in and that ended up being the song in the movie. All of the mistakes I made All the ways that I fucked up The plans I laid And all the times I showed up I think being pretty far into a career is a really hard place to be. 
being pretty far into a career that has not yet materialized into full-on success. Because you, 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 know, you kind of have to look at what you've done and make this decision of like, okay, do I keep going? Do I forge forward? There's a reason why not everybody does this, and that's because it's hard, and it's not something that everybody's going to find success in. There's a really difficult analysis that you have to do of like, well, there's skill, there's talent, and there's luck. And it's like, which of these things have come up short? And certainly it's easy to blame it on luck because that's external. But then you also have to look at it and be like, well, maybe it's skill and maybe it's talent. One other thing that I knew is that it also gets like harder and harder to break out when you're in the middle of your career. It's a strange thing, but like, it is much more likely for a new artist to get a lot of attention and excitement. You know, somebody who's putting out their first or their second album, there's a sense of discovery that people really love. But if you've kind of been around and, you know, you put out a few albums and people sort of know your name and they're like, yeah, I heard a song or I heard a couple songs and like, yeah, it's fine. The idea of that somebody's going to give you a chance for album five to have the same kind of moment of breaking out that they might for somebody who's on album one or two seems really unlikely. I know what they are. I know what they do. It's not for me. I don't need to consider it again. This was a kind of narrative that was going on in my head about the 1AM radio. It didn't happen. It hasn't happened. If I keep going with this, is there a chance that it's going to happen now? It feels like the chances are diminishing for me. And so at that time, I'm like, well, maybe I need to change things fundamentally. Maybe I've been deluding myself for these last 10 years. Or like, I'm only as good as what's come my way. You know, this sort of like lower middling level of success, which was an extremely depressing thought. Fires have gone out. The sirens have died down. I thought maybe I need to start putting records out under a new name. Or maybe I need to start a whole new project. Maybe I need to start doing something entirely different. Or maybe I need to abandon this and just do the film scoring side of things. I think it was tough for Lindsay because my music is what brought us together, you know? So she has always been really supportive. And I think she's been sad to see me have this attitude of um, feeling like a failure. So after the, that record came out in 2011, I felt a little bit paralyzed. I wanted to try and find a way to make music on my own terms without necessarily the external demands of a day job, working for somebody else, having a boss or something like that. So one of the ideas that I had had for a long time was to do a show where musicians talked about their creative process and audiences could hear the isolated tracks from a song one by one and that that could be an audio show. And I had this idea that, oh, this could be something that a brand could produce. And the idea of like content wars was just emerging between platforms as Netflix was starting to get into the original content game. And there was speculation about how Amazon was going to do the same. And I was looking around and I saw all these different sort of streaming platforms that were also emerging in the music space. And I was thinking, well, they have the similar problem of differentiating themselves in terms of content from one another. And that was sort of the impetus for Song Exploder as a way to create my own day job 
with the skills and the tools that I already had at my disposal, using conversations and concepts that I dealt with every day as a musician and working with other musicians. You're listening to Song Exploder, where musicians take apart their songs and piece by piece tell the story of how they were made. My name is Rishikesh Hirway. And nobody bit. None of those places that I pitched to were interested in original audio as like a format. Everybody just wanted to do video stuff. In the end, I decided to launch it as a podcast independently because somehow I felt convinced enough that if I just put it out in the world, people would understand what was great about it. If you build it, they will come. I had a real field of dreams kind of feeling about it. And I also said, okay, I was going to give myself a year to do it. And if it didn't work after a year, then fine, forget it. I tried it and it didn't go. And then the thing that ended up just being very strange about it is that it took off in a way that I would say is bigger than my band ever did. And it led to all kinds of other creative opportunities. And it ended up being my day job for the six years since then. I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in if I hadn't had that kind of relentless voice of practicality in my head from my father, from my parents. I wouldn't have thought Song Exploder could be this good idea that could create my day job. In a lot of ways, it feels like I should chalk it up as a success, but sometimes I look at it and I think about how it's just been an obstacle to getting back to making music. And at the same time, I also think like, God, thank God I have this, because who knows if I, if I were to make another record, like how would that turn out? I think that like the show has kind of been to my detriment because I feel like, oh gosh, I've talked to all these people. Now with all this like wealth of information, I better make something good. But I got to forget about that too. I have to just stop because it's like, oh, if I have not successfully synthesized the wisdom of Bjork, <laughs> you know, and Lord, and I end up coming up with something that's like some indie bullshit that nobody likes. Does that not make me even even greater of a failure? I feel sometimes a little bit like I chickened out. I still call myself a musician. I still say the 1AM radio is my job. I do Song Exploder on the side. But the reality of it, the actual day-to-day -day reality of it, is that I spend a lot more time working on podcasts. And in the last few years, there have been other podcasts besides Song Exploder that I've made. And so much of my time and effort has been dedicated towards those projects and very little has been dedicated towards making my own music. Thank God, because then I had a way to pay the bills. And maybe also thank God, because then I didn't have to face the inevitable disappointment of putting out another record that didn't do as well as I would have hoped. I sometimes teach this podcast workshop. One of the first things that I would ask people who were taking the workshop was, what does success look like for you? What do you want to get out of making this show? Is it a reason for you and your friends to be able to get together and have the conversation that you always want to have with them? Or do you want to have you know, the biggest show in the world? Because what your answer is to that question should define everything else that comes in this workshop about how you make the show. How much time are you going to spend on it? How much money are you going to invest into it? If it's really just about having something that you and your friends and your family can listen to, then, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can achieve that goal. And I think the same thing actually holds true with music, too. I think if I had set my sights somewhere different, I would never have felt disappointment. 
Because I think there are a number of standards for success by which I, I could have looked at what my life had been and felt totally fine about going on to make another record. And one of the things that's been hardest for me in my life in general is to disabuse myself of notions that I have that are just like fact. I'm just like, well, that's how it is. And instead realize there's all these relative shades to it. Now I'm at this place where I'm actually really excited to make another record. My expectations have been battered so much that I have none. I have none left. And I'm back, I think, to some place that feels closer to the beginning of my career, where I'm just excited to do it. It's not the thing that I'm relying on for paying my bills. And if nobody listens to it or 40 people listen to it, like, that's okay. That used to be my life. Rishikesh released his first EP in a decade this March, Rooms I Used to Call My Own. You can check out Song Exploder on your favorite podcast app, as well as a series spinoff of the show on Netflix. You can find out more about Rishikesh on the web at rishikesh.co. Best Laid Plans is produced by Todd Luoto and myself. Music for this episode is by The 1AM Radio and Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork by Tim Ahern. Find us on the web at bestlaidpod.com and consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks for listening. It was you.